Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 14. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave, this, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the, from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for such a beautiful morning, for a, a sunrise. Um, it was just glorious, uh, showing something true of you. Thank you for some warmth, uh, finally in the midst of a, just the, the darkness of winter, a day in the 60s. Lord, thank you. Father, for your goodness with us this morning, gathering your people, we say thank you, we praise you. You are such a good and faithful Father. Lord Jesus, we are listening, listening for your word, listening for your voice. As we open the, the scriptures today, Lord Jesus, it's with the, the expectation and the confidence that you will speak to us for you are the eternal word. Lord, this morning, may we not just remember your sacrifice, but may it be everything to us. May we remember the way of, of Jesus. It's not just a phrase, it's a, a way of atonement, a way of forgiveness, a way of new life. And Holy Spirit of God, we are aware that you are among us, that you are within us. And even still, we pray for an even greater awareness of your presence. And we pray, come Holy Spirit, fill this place. 
Today we're, we're meditating on your power, Holy Spirit. The power that draws us together in prayer and then the power that answers those prayers. The power that knows even far better than our prayers. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this gathering. I thank you for each and every person in here and uh, in the gym next door and in the classrooms in the back. Lord, would you continue this good work that you have begun in this church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, welcome to Trinity, especially if you're new here. It's really great to see you. Uh, thank you for everybody who came out on Wednesday night to the celebration dinner. That was a ton of fun. Uh, I don't know if each one is better than the last or if they're all just incredible and I have recency bias, but this one was my favorite. Uh, I've said that each of the three times, but it was uh, just a blessing to be with you all, to hear your evidences of grace, your testimonies to what God is doing in you and in and through this church. So thank you so much for being a part of that. And I probably don't say it enough, but I just love this church so much. I love being a pastor here. I love that I get to be with you all. Uh, and I look forward to Sunday so, so much. Uh, and not just because it's Super Bowl Sunday. Every Sunday I look forward to. This one is, is super special, of course, but I love you all, and I'm so glad to be with you. This morning, we are back in Acts chapter 1. We were there last week. We're actually looking at the same 14 verses. Last week, we looked at three themes that are, that are setting us up for the entire series. The way of Jesus, his way of the cross, his way of sacrifice, his way of atonement, and his way of obedience, his way of faithfulness, his way of healing, his way of teaching, and all of this he has shared with us as his people. We also looked at the togetherness of the early church, how their, their relationships and their community formed as a way of, of doing the way of Jesus together, but also doing life together. And then lastly, we looked at the early church's mission, the renewal of all things, that they saw all of creation coming under the lordship of Christ, and they went out from that security and from that power to do everything that they did in the, the 30 acts, the, the 30 years that are captured in the book of Acts. So you put those together and you get our mission, practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. Today, I want to look at the next three verses, 12, 13, and 14 and ask, where do we begin? When we look at the, the way of Jesus, when we look at the, the book of Acts, where do, where do we begin? Where did the early church begin? And what we're going to see this morning is that it's prayer that precedes everything else. Prayer precedes power. And so if you are with us in Acts, I encourage you to grab one of those pew Bibles if you don't have one with you already. We're going to mostly camp out in verses 12 through 14, but I want to show you some things from other parts of Acts, so that'll be helpful as well. The theme is prayer precedes prayer, excuse me, prayer precedes power, and the three things we're going to look at is how we see it in Acts, why it's true, and then what it means for us. And so the very first thing is how we see this theme in Acts. How do we see prayer in Acts? Last week we saw this seamless connection between the ministry of Jesus on earth when he was physically with us for three years and his, his life in and around Jerusalem and Galilee. And Luke, the author of Acts, made the connection for us that his gospel, the gospel of Luke, was all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up into heaven. 
And the implication is that Acts is like the Gospel of Luke part two, that it's everything that Jesus continued to do and to teach. Even though he had ascended, he continued to teach through his followers, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this seamless connection between what Jesus did while physically on earth and then his ministry and his teaching through the early church, the connection between those things is prayer. In fact, the connection is the very same power of Christ, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not merely a a power or an impersonal force, but the power of God is a person. It's personal. It's the Holy Spirit. Romans says it's the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so the seamless connection between Jesus' ministry and ours is receiving the power of God through prayer. When Jesus began his ministry on earth, do you remember the very first thing he did? He didn't start teaching, didn't start with a miracle, didn't, uh, you know, start out with this huge bang, raising somebody from the dead, you know, right off the bat. The very first thing that Jesus did was receive. He received the Holy Spirit. He received baptism. Before he did anything else, he went into the waters And the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. In the same way, the disciples, before they do anything else, they are told to wait. Verse 4, Jesus tells them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. In the same way, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But the very first thing they are to do is to wait. And so the disciples, they, they obey, they wait. They don't get started apart from the power of God, but they understood the promise that Jesus had given them. And so we see in verse 12, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Then verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so this is for the followers of Christ. This is a time of preparation. These prayers, their return to the upper room, it was a time of preparing them for all that God was going to do in and through them. If you're familiar with Acts, you know the very next chapter is Pentecost, Acts 2. And we're going to look at this next week, but just so you can see the power that is unleashed right after this time of prayer, it says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And so they're still together, still praying, still seeking the Lord's face, seeking his power, waiting in the way that Jesus had commanded them to do. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The power of Acts 2 comes immediately after the prayer of Acts 1. That's the power that we're seeing. The the pattern is that power always is followed or or is preceded by prayer. Whenever we're looking at Acts and we see something that's incredible, something out of the ordinary, something where God is intervening, if you just back up a few verses, you see the same thing, and it's people together praying. In Acts chapter 3, if you want to flip there, 
the very beginning, it says, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And they meet this person, somebody who is there, who is paralyzed, who is asking for money. And it's the very first miracle that the disciples, now called the apostles, the sent ones, do. In verse 6, Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And so right there at the beginning of chapter 3, this ministry of the apostles takes off. It's literally the same type of work that Jesus was doing, healing, drawing people up, taking the poor and the needy and the lowly and elevating them, restoring them, healing them. Peter and John and the other apostles go right back into that ministry, but only after they've had a time of prayer there in verse 1. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 4, In verse 24, Peter and John have been arrested and released. And it says, When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And they go on praying and pouring their hearts out to God. And then if you look towards the end of this section, verse 31, it says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And so they go out again to do the work of Jesus, teaching with all boldness, but first they are gathered in prayer. In the same way, Acts chapter 10, if you'll flip a few more pages, Cornelius is a Roman centurion, a a soldier, a a non-Israelite, a Gentile, and he oversees a hundred of these Roman soldiers. And in verse 4, God appears to him in a vision with an angel saying, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. And so an angel appears to Cornelius, this, this Gentile, and, and tells him exactly what to do. At the same time, God also appears to Peter in prayer. In verse 9, it says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. And so he receives a vision, and it's a vision that's compatible with the vision of Cornelius. And as soon as he's done praying, there's a knock on the door, and it's Cornelius, who has come and brought all of his Roman soldiers, and he's asking Peter, will you share with us the gospel? And so Peter goes, and he shares with all these Roman, Italian soldiers, and every last one of them believes, and every single one of them is baptized. It's the beginning of the church outside of the people of God, outside of Israel. In both cases, it starts with prayer. Acts chapter 12, if you'll flip a couple more pages. The apostles have been in prison for their witness to the gospel. The gospel is now beginning to spread far beyond Israel. They're going around the Mediterranean, sharing the good news of Jesus, and yet they're thrown in prison. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And so the apostles are set free. They can go, continue to spread the gospel. But what happens right before this? Verse five. So Peter was kept in prison 
but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I'll show you one more. I've got a bunch of others, but we'll go to Acts 13 and finish here. Acts 13, verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So again, the gospel goes forward. The church multiplies. It begins to spread. They're going to a new place in the world. This missionary journey takes place over the next few chapters and thousands, if not tens of thousands of people come to know the Lord. And it all begins with a prayer meeting. The apostles gathered praying and the Holy Spirit speaks to them, telling them what to do. This pattern is just all over the book of Acts. Anytime something incredible happens, you back up a few verses and people are praying. Every single time. Most of the time, we don't even get to know what they were praying. I think it's Acts 4 that we saw that they actually described the prayer and they say, here's what they were praying. But almost every time, we just simply don't know what they were praying, but we just know that they were praying. It's as if to say the, the exact content of the prayer is not the power. It's not, you know, saying the apostles prayed these three things and all of a sudden the heavens opened up. There's no, like, magic trick to prayer. Instead, it's men and women crying out to God on their knees, on their faces, pleading with God for his power to come, and then it does. And so that's the power that, the pattern that prayer precedes pow- power. There's way too many Ps in this. The pattern is that prayer precedes power. You'll remember that, right? All right, now why is this true? Why is this the case? First, the the Bible theology answer, and then I'll give you a practical one. The first answer why prayer always comes before power is that every time the Bible is talking about power, there's always this extraordinary power, but it doesn't always look really that extraordinary, right? Like there's times where God splits open the Red Sea, times where God appears in a, a fiery bush, times where, where the, the prison door is flung open and the apostles go free. But most of the time we see the power of God in the scriptures that's operating far more quietly in, in a more hidden and invisible way. It's the power of God changing people's lives and their hearts. God's power makes a hard person soft. God's power restores broken marriages. God's power leads people away from sin and into faith, into a life of obedience. God's power starts new churches and rejuvenates old ones. But God's power, we see it over and over again in the scriptures and in our own lives, but most of the time it's not this fantastic, extraordinary display of power. It's just the extraordinary power of God working in these unseen, even ordinary ways but the results are profound. And so the reason that I think God always uses prayer right before he demonstrates his power is to remind us of the connection that he's making, that he's actually involving us in the renewal of the world. The prayer doesn't just come before power, but it's actually the first demonstration of God's power. Like that people are even even gathered and praying at all is the first sign that God's power is coming down. When the people pray, it's already an act of incredible renewal. Moses meets with God face to face before leading Israel out of Egypt. Elijah spends days in prayer and fasting before he he is used by God to do these incredible miracles. 
Esther and God's people, they pray and fast for days before the Lord answers them and saves the entire nation. Nehemiah is mourning and praying and fasting for days before God uses him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It's not just that prayer comes before the power, but prayer is the first moment of power. It's God pouring his power into our very lives so that we would turn to him, so that we would have hearts of of total desperation before him. God is involving us in the renewal of the world when he calls us to pray. Now, the practical answer, why, why prayer is always before power. I think it's really easy when we look at Acts, we'll probably feel this a lot throughout the next few months. It's easy to feel disconnected from the story of Acts. Like that was 2,000 years ago, it was six or 7,000 miles away, and it really feels like it, like we feel so far removed from the story of Acts. Most of us have never healed somebody or seen somebody raised from the dead. Most of us have, have never seen the, the spread of the church the way the early church saw it. It's, it's never happened quite in the way that it did in the first century. And yet the first thing I, I would want to say is that you are facing probably far more overwhelming challenges than you even realize. The things that the early church faced, we're, we're still facing those things today. They just look a little bit different. We're still facing spiritual opposition each and every day. We're still tasked with the same commission to make disciples among our coworkers and our, our neighbors and our family members and our friends. And so the power of God is no different from the first century to today. The extraordinary capacity of God to, to intervene and do incredible things, it's no different then than now. And we have far more power that we can call upon, that we can invite, uh, we can ask God to invite us into than I think we realize. And yet at the same time, even though I want you to feel that our lives are still connected to the lives of the early Christians, I I recognize too that for many of us, we are too far disconnected. Our lives do look too different from those of the early church. The things that we spend our times on, our priorities, our lifestyle, the way we move about life, it is really different from the early church. And there's a million different reasons for that. They're cultural, it's time, it's, it's a lot of different things. But one of my great fears is that we've constructed lives that just don't require the power of God in the same way. We've set up lives that are so comfortable, so safe, so guarded, that we, we don't really have a need for the power of God in the way that the early Christians did. There's discontinuity between them and between us, and I think we need to ask the Lord, where have we not been faithful to his call? Prayer and purposeful living, they always go hand in hand. I'm sure you've felt this at times in your Christian life that you're praying and then God gives you an opportunity. And then when you step into that opportunity, whether it's sharing your faith with somebody or taking a, a risk for the kingdom or stepping into some uncomfortable role for the sake of Christ, then you're, you're, you realize suddenly how important prayer is, right? Maybe it's just giving birth or starting a new job, something that takes you totally out of your element. You find yourself praying more than ever in that moment, right? And so when you're living purposefully and, and missionally with, with God in mind at all times, you realize how much you need to be praying. And then the more you pray, the more God calls you into places of opportunity. 
And so they always go hand in hand, prayer and purposeful living. And so I think we've seen from Acts how it's true. We've seen why it's true. The third and maybe most important thing is what it means for us today. How would our lives look different if God answered all of our prayers? Think about that. How would your life look different if God answered everything you prayed for in the last week? Would we simply be more comfortable, more stable? Would we have better, better health? Would our, our grandparents be living well past 100? These are all really good things to pray for. But sometimes when I think about that, what would it look like if God had answered everything I prayed for over the last month? And honestly, it's really not that much different than what I've experienced. And the problem is that I'm just praying for such small things, just important things like peace to get through the day, but just small things. As I said last week, I think I've been, been thinking too small and praying too small. I said last week that I'm praying for more of God's presence in this church and I'm praying for nothing short of an all-out renewal, a renewal of our hearts and lives, a renewal that spreads across Trinity, a, a renewal that involves the other churches and ministries in this town and a renewal that involves the entire city of Columbia and beyond. I wonder if we're not praying for that, and if that's not the main thing that we're praying for, this holistic renewal, then what are we praying for and why? One of the things I've been reading about over the last uh, few months, and it's always been an area of interest for me, I love studying revivals in history. Revivals in our country and revivals in other places. And you see these patterns, things that are true almost everywhere. And everyone's a little bit different. But one of the things I want to suggest from church history is that revival typically starts in pews and not pulpits. Revivals typically start out among the people, not from the preacher, not from the pastor, not from the organized traditional church. Revival is almost always from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Revival starts when people are, are getting together and praying for their own renewal and for the renewal of their communities. Now we have, you know, examples of, of God using incredible people in history like George Whitfield and John Wesley and Billy Graham. But my personal favorite example of a revival in American history comes in 1857. So in 1857, it was one of the darkest times in our country's history. In 1857, church attendance had been on a steady decline for decades and decades. In early 1857, the Supreme Court passed the Dred Scott ruling, uh, which refused African-Americans, uh, slaves, the right to become U.S. citizens. Wall Street tanked that same year, causing panic and leading to an increase in unemployment and poverty. And so it was a time of division. It was a time of unrest, a time of crisis in our country. And the church was almost totally marginalized. It, it was becoming almost completely ineffective. And, and as a side note, if, you're, if your understanding of the church in America is that it started out really, really strong 400 years ago and has just been in a steady decline the last 400 years, that's not true at all. There's always times of decline followed by times of renewal. And 1857 was one of those times. So in the midst of all this division, all this chaos, all this crisis, 
in New York City, there was a businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear. And he began using his lunch breaks to pray. And so businessmen downtown New York City, he started going to the church around the corner, Fulton Street Church. He's an ordinary guy, not married, no kids, late 40s, a faithful believer. But he understood that he was living in desperate times. And so he would give up lunch, and once a week he decided to go and pray in this church. After doing this for a few weeks, he wanted to invite other people into it, so he started hanging uh, flyers. Flyers uh, were physical pieces of paper before social media. He plastered flyers all over the city saying, anybody that wants to come and pray, this is the time, this is the place, lunch hour, prayer. Very first week, nobody showed up. It's just him. Second week, six people walk in and they pray. For a few weeks and a few months, they continue to pray. And by the end of the year, there were 30 people praying regularly. A few months after that, the prayer meeting had grown to 200 people and they had decided to pray every single day, Monday through Friday, during lunch. They had these kind of fight club rules that I love. They had three rules that they would post in the prayer meeting. Rule number one, nobody could pray for more than two minutes out loud at once. Rule number two, you can't pray for more than five minutes total in one hour. Rule number three, if this is your first time here, you must pray. That's from the movie, I'm kidding. (laughs) Rule number three, I love this too, no controversial points discussed. That was rule number three. And so some folks had come down from Boston and they had experienced this uh, business prayer meeting during lunch and so they went back to Boston and started the same thing. As the months went on, these little prayer groups started to pop up in city after city after city, mostly with men. And then the women began to see what was happening and then they would get together in their homes early before the dawn all over these cities and they would pray as well. So that by the time the next summer rolled around 1858, there were 10,000 people praying daily during these lunch hour times. That year, 1858 in the fall, it began to to spread so that almost every U.S. city and every university campus had thousands of people praying during lunch. By the end of the third year, more than 470,000 people had joined churches after coming to faith. In three years, 470,000. And these are just the ones who are, are documented that joined churches after being baptized. The history books say that, that bars were closing, poverty decreased, prostitution disappeared. And many of these businessmen and attorneys began to lay out an argument against slavery. There's a historian of the Civil War that notes that it was the business prayer revival that set out a vision, quote, that society must be reconstructed by a power of the sanctifying gospel and all the evils of cruelty and slavery be done away. And so history shows that revival, that renewal that spreads It comes up from pews. It doesn't just go out from pulpits. I've had people say, I I love what you're praying for. It's so great to have a, you know, just in the last week, it's great that that my pastor is praying for revival. I said, thank you, but I don't want to be the only one. You know, when when it spreads, it's not because there's one pastor praying and everybody else goes along with it. And I know that's not the case here. It takes an entire church, an entire people praying for more of God's presence 
And whenever we see God doing something incredible in, in time and in history, it's almost always at times of great uh, political unrest, a social division, stress and, and conflict in a place. And I think we're all feeling that right now. We feel it in Colombia. We feel it in our country. And so as we said on Wednesday night, our theme for the year is renewal seeking prayer. Prayer that begs God for his power to bring renewal to our lives, to our hearts, to our minds. Renewal that spreads to our relationships and renewal that spreads throughout this church and the churches of this city. Renewal that spreads throughout Columbia and beyond. Individual renewal leading to congregational renewal, leading to citywide renewal. And every single step along the way is prayer. If I can borrow a phrase from Alpha, the old evangelism course, praying for renewal is perfectly designed to fail unless God shows up. If God doesn't show up, then it'll feel like a failure. And yet how many of the things that we do in churches can just keep going and going and going, even if God's presence has left the building? But in praying for renewal, we realize that we are calling on God, bringing ourselves before him and saying, what do you want to do here? And if God doesn't do something extraordinary in, in the sense that we normally think about it, it doesn't mean that it's actually failure. But it means that we recognize that we cannot do the things that we want to see without prayer, without God intervening. I've been thinking a lot the last couple of weeks about what has kept me from praying more boldly in my life. And the first thing is simply unbelief. I'm not sure if it'll make any difference. If I pray each and every morning, does it really make that big of a difference? And the second thing is fear. Honestly, what if God does answer my prayer? Like, what if I do get an opportunity to, to share the gospel with this, this guy I've been cycling with for a year? That'll put me in the way of, of rejection and, and uh, things that are uncomfortable. What if, I, what if people actually do come to the faith and now I manage, have to manage these new relationships that are difficult and messy? What if our church is suddenly filled with more people and it's more messy and complicated? Like there's a real fear in me that if God really does answer our prayers, life's going to get a little more tricky. Reminded of something an old pastor said, he's passed away now, but he used to say it's neat and tidy in the graveyard. It's messy in the nursery. I like that. Our churches should probably look a lot more like children's ministries. Noisy, uncomfortable, messy, but bursting with life. I think what I'm seeing when I look at my own life and, and reflect even on, on our experience as a church together, my experience in, in ministry for the last 12 years or so, I'm recognizing that safe and comfortable living is not really all it's cracked up to be. At a certain point, this, this discontent becomes a really good thing, that there should be more to life. There should be more happening in my soul. There should be more happening in our relationships and in our churches. And the reason that it's so messy and so uncomfortable is that the Holy Spirit always leads us to confront our own brokenness first. He always, almost always leads us into some kind of wilderness season before he leads us into the promised land, 
There's a season of struggle of, of recognizing the darkness in our own hearts, of having to lay certain things down, to, to remove things from ourselves. Prayer reveals our true wants and our desires, and that's often a really scary thing. Fasting in particular exposes our impurities and our compulsions. And yet prayer and fasting together, they lead us to purity, to obedience, to holiness. Everything I've been reading about renewals, are, it shows that renewal only happens when individuals have come to the end of themselves. Only when they realize that everything else in life is not working. That the only hope left is a, is a total desperate spirit depending on the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit to create desperation in us the way that he created desperation in the early church. In the ways that they realized that their lives depended on the power of God and that their lives could depend on the power of God, that they could go out in faith and in boldness and in confidence to do all the things that Jesus had called them to do and that the power of God would uphold them every single moment. We don't need to be more disciplined in prayer. We need to be more desperate. God fills the hungry. Prayer always precedes power. Let's pray.